In this episode, you're going to learn about the different IoT architectural approaches that you can take when developing an IoT solution. You're going to learn how to leverage edge computing, how to select an IoT gateway, how to select communication protocols, security mechanisms, and you're also going to learn how to select an industrial IoT platform and much more. My guest to help impart that knowledge is Rick Balota. Rick co-founded Thingworks, which was later acquired by PTC. Thingworks was the first and currently is one of the best industrial IoT platforms. Rick previously served as partner director at Microsoft, where he helped define and drive Azure IoT strategy. And he was also previously CTO at Wonderway, a leading global provider of manufacturing operations software solutions. He was a vice president with SAP Research in the areas of feature manufacturing and the Internet of Things. Rick was also the CTO and co-founder of Lighthammer Software Development, a company developing software products targeted at the manufacturing industry. He currently serves as an investor, advisor, board member and mentor in many industrial IoT startup companies. Welcome to the fourth generation podcast here on Industry 40.tv which is a series of weekly interviews designed to help you learn industrial IoT from some of the world's leading practitioners. So make sure to subscribe and click on the notification bell to make sure that you never miss any of the interviews. Now, here's my conversation with Rick. Rick, uh, welcome to the show and uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you. Okay, yeah, so we'll just uh, jump right in. Uh, so now... Uh, in the past uh, decade or so, uh, we've seen uh, industrial IoT architectures change from uh, simple cases of just collecting sensor data and sending it to the cloud uh, to, to like a wide variety of, of, of scenarios. Now, uh, what I want to know is what, um, what architectural patterns are currently available as, as, as options for, for implementing IoT solutions? So, uh, I mean, broadly, what's interesting is when we talk about industrial IoT, I always ask the first question is, are we talking um, about all of the industrial applications of IoT or kind of the narrow definition, which is manufacturing plants, power generation facilities, and that certainly dictates what uh, architectural options make sense. In the broader definition, you've got everything from the, I call it the, if there's such a thing as traditional IoT, connected fleets of assets that are typically connected uh, for remote management, remote monitoring, almost like um, in a way, the original definition of SCADA, right? Where we would monitor sensors in oil fields and things like that. Um, and then what I kind of the industry 4.0 type definition, which is focusing on those, um, not just the assets, but the processes that are going on inside, you know, these industrial facilities. And quite honestly, they're two radically different um, architectural needs, uh, implementation models, uh, different kinds of data. Uh, even today, you know, 90 to maybe as much as 98% of the latter case, right, inside the plant systems are still on-prem. That's just the nature of how they've been deployed. We call it the edge now. It's not on-prem anymore. But um, whereas probably the complete opposite, 99% of those connected fleet uh, scenarios are kind of cloud to device. So the short version is it really is all of the above. Depending on the use case, uh, one architectural approach or another will, will make the most sense. 
Um, another one that's, I think, often overlooked is the location of the site itself. If the, if the data has a very limited connection to the outside world, but it's very data intensive, you know, that may lend itself to a bit more edge processing. Um, whereas if you have, you know, virtually limitless access and reliable networks, reliability being a very important piece, you know, in general, the cloud doesn't go down, right? But all, there's many things along the way that can, that can cause problems, not just the cloud itself. So availability, performance, latency, all these kinds of things matter quite a bit as well. Uh, okay, yeah, I, I totally agree there. I mean, like edge computing seems to, 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 to make quite a compelling case, particularly for, for manufacturing uh, uh, companies. Now, what, what I want to know is when implementing a, an edge solution, like an IoT solution, uh, to what extent should uh, workload processes be assigned to the edge as, as, as compared to, to the cloud? That's, that's a great question, a very important one too. Also very specific to each implementation. I, I used to joke about the illities, right? The availability, uh, um, reliability, uh, all of the kind of the things, um, scalability, all the things that we, you know, we want in our applications. Um, we have to look at each, you know, at, at each use case and decide, is it, um, if I have to have a very low latency, if I have to have nearly 100% uptime, as I said, it's not like the cloud that goes down or the computer on site. It's all those many elements of failure in between that can cause these problems. So mission critical workloads, you know, tend to be as close to the hardware as we can. I mean, if you think about, let's even go really talk about the edge, uh, a PLC, right? 80% of your, um, of your code in a PLC is typically error handling, safety, all those very, very mission critical things. Um, highly available hardware, directly connected to the IO. Um, and then as the mission criticality changes, as you move up the stack, you know, then, then you can determine, you have a little bit more flexibility. Uh, performance certainly matters quite a bit, right? If I'm um, increasingly, for example, we're starting to see um, more and more um, applications of video analysis and audio analysis and signal analysis being pushed out to the edge where it used to have, you know, require moving a lot of data to the cloud, crunching some stuff. Um, now that's becoming very feasible to do at the edge. Uh, human interface, right? Our, our HMIs and our SCADAs, um, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to move a bunch of data to the cloud and then bring the visual experience back. Um, so I think that's another part is where are the consumers of that data or the users of that data? Uh, a number of years ago, my, my first company was a company called Lighthammer. And basically what that was all about was initially remote visibility to, to that data, whether remote meant uh, in an office, you know, 100 meters away, or did it mean, you know, someone across the country uh, or, or across the world? And what we, um, what we noticed, we started looking at usage patterns of who was consuming the data. Example would be from a historian, right? Lots and lots of data collected very quickly. And we found that the people that are using the most data, the most frequently, tended to be co-located with that data, right? So that sort of lends, it, lends itself to an architecture where all that communication happens locally as opposed to sending masses of amounts of data back and forth to the cloud. Um, I think the analytics world is kind of changing things a little bit. Um, 
So I, I talk a lot about kind of the hot path data, right? The, the, what's going on right now. And then the kind of cold path or warm path data where you archive it, you do analysis on it. We've seen a lot of people start to move that data uh, into cloud architectures. I think that's a byproduct also of the, the analytic tools and the AI and machine learning tools we have today tend to like to have a big data lake. They're not really well suited to go to the source systems directly. Um, so that's probably influencing uh, adoption of cloud solutions as well. Okay, yeah, that's, that's, that's very interesting. Now, um, you know, as you might be aware, I create quite, quite uh, some content uh, on, on, on LinkedIn there, and I get like a, a, quite some feedback from, from uh, uh, individuals and companies wanting to implement IoT solutions. And one of the most common questions is, um, what device platform or, or IoT gateway should we use for, for, for our IoT solution? Now, what would you uh, say are the factors to consider when, when, when selecting a, a, an IoT gateway? Well, that's a good question. And I think at first, the first foundational question is what's the communication technology you're gonna use? So if it's, um, that may you know, indirectly dictate, uh, if I'm just gonna be using existing you know, broadband or fiber backhaul to the cloud, in essence, any kind of you know, industrial compute would be fine, right? Pretty much off the shelf PC or you know, industrial uh, dedicated device would be fine. Increasingly, we're seeing a lot more Linux on the plant floor. If you remember, you know, you roll back 10 years, we were probably 99% Windows. Increasingly, we're starting to see Linux OSs in some of these devices. But it's going to be more an issue of are you using a cellular backhaul, a, five, a company most recently might be implementing, for example, like a 5G private network. You know, it's very early satellite backhaul. Um, second question would be uh, how, how do you want to implement high availability? There's in essence two approaches to that, a software-based approach with, uh, you know, multiple instances, multiple boxes. And then in the industrial world, we've traditionally taken a hardware-based approach, highly available hardware with redundant power supplies and, again, CPU and memory and all these types of things. Um, so those considerations as well. Uh, once again, we're kind of getting back to the illities, right? Availability, reliability. Um, but I, I, you know, honestly, I think the software is going to matter more. The gateways for the most, I'm not going to say they're commoditized, but they're more interchangeable than they have ever been. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes quite a lot of sense there. Now, now um, one of the things that I, I, like, I really consider to be a good design practice when you're putting together an IoT solution is, is how easily you can add uh, components to, to, to that solution. I mean, particularly with the industrial landscape, we've got like a variety of, of systems. Now, what sort of uh, integration mechanisms uh, should, should people use to sort of like uh, simplify that onboarding uh, process? When you say, so in that would be like physical devices or more um, how do you, when you're trying to integrate a new source of data or, I mean, a lot of it depends on whether it's legacy, in which case the integration mechanism is largely dictated by the capabilities of that legacy device. And unfortunately in our world, as you know, most everything is legacy, right? Yes, <laughs> it's 20, yes. 10, 20 years old. Um, and it, I think this also ties back in with that kind of fleet, uh, connected fleet scenario, 
where you might be using, you know, a cellular network. So the, the act of bringing on a new device um, is provisioning it on communication, provisioning it in your cloud system, provisioning any software systems. Um, so that's kind of a, there's actually some best practices that are available that each of the IoT cloud vendors have to help with that. Sometimes it's even, uh, you know, uh, it, it's not just the provisioning, it's the device management, keeping them up to date. It's being able to, to remotely disable a rogue device, for example, those yes. kinds of things. But within our four wall kind of solutions, within the um, you know, manufacturing plant or utility, uh, power generation facility, um, that really tends to be so specific to what that system is, what communication protocols and supports. Um, you know, the only th consideration I guess I'd add to that is increasingly um, for less mission critical, I mean, even some mission critical software applications, um, the idea of provisioning is no longer, you had to request uh, from the IT department, some physical hardware, a server blade. Now it might be provisioning a virtual machine in some, right, in, in some kind of virtualized computing infrastructure that could be on site, could be in your company's data center. So the idea of provisioning capacity now is very different than it was, you know, a few years ago. Oh, okay, yeah, that's quite interesting. Now, we're going to move on to, like, uh, one of the hotly contested issues, um, uh, protocol selection. Uh, I know then there might not be a straightforward answer to that, but, like, what, what, what would you say uh, are considerations that one should take when, when selecting an IoT protocol to, communication protocol to use? Sure. Great question. And, and it, it's a, that's also a complicated one in that the, it's, uh, it goes back to this leg at, I call it the, you know, the last mile or the last foot. We're basically dependent on what the device communicates, the sensor, the controller, you know, the, the historian, whatever that source of data is, we're generally dependent on whatever protocols it supports. And as you well know, you know, every PLC vendor has their own communication protocols. Uh, proprietary APIs for many of the, the software systems that we use in, the, in, in our industrial environments. Um, but then when you start to go, how do you connect these systems together as peers or connect them to the cloud? Again, today, I think, um, unfortunately, those actual protocols tend to be very specific to the IoT cloud vendor or industrial cloud vendor. At some level, it's almost always a TCP-based protocol. Uh, and I know one of the topics you wanted to cover is like architectural patterns, request response versus pub stuff. We'll touch on that in a minute. But I, I just don't see yet a lot of standardization. Even companies that use, for example, something like MQTT as their bridge from the industrial side, or excuse me, the, the edge side to the cloud, apply it in very, very different ways. You know, different ways they use these underlying protocols. Really, they become just a way to send packets back and forth almost, rather than semantically interesting. Then you've got OPC UA. Again, OPC and OPC UA, um, at some level, you still have to talk to the physical device. We've got that, you know, uh, Tower of Babel that we need to deal with you know, for that last, uh, last bit. Um, and then natively on the other side, once again, I still see a lot of people who deploy something like OPC or OPC UA, who once again do an, yet another protocol translation to get it into their cloud system. Or quite commonly, uh, sometimes they'll do a translation to take perhaps a very technical identifier out of your 
control system and turned it into a friendlier name that you might want to use in a IoT cloud or a digital twin model or you know, data analytics. Oh yes, yeah. Maybe let's let's touch uh, on on the issue of like the the two main uh, IoT communication patterns, which is the, the client server model and the publish subscribe uh, pattern of communication. Uh, what are the key pros and cons for each that you sure. you, you you see there? Uh, not surprisingly, it's an, another all of the above scenario, right? Where there's there's perfectly good use cases for each. Um, things like um, let's let's go down again at the lowest level. Sometimes many of these devices exclusively uh, support, and I would I would uh, maybe combine with client server more request response, right? That's kind of a that side of the equation. So that's how a lot of those protocols have typically worked. You're polling, you know, you're asking the device for something, you get a response. Um, so at some level, we still have a lot of that because the devices need to. Similarly, when we're doing things like invoking, uh, making a request to set a value, or we're asking some, uh, some querying our historian, those, those fit the client server request response pattern very well. We're so, when we're looking at more real-time data, where I'm interested in new latest values for telemetry, or I'm interested in subscribing to some pattern of events or alarms, those tend to, to fit the PubSub model very well. MQTT, OPC, many, many others. Um, one of the challenges uh, there is um, just basically, once again, you've got to map all these other kind of systems into this namespace, whether it's your OPC namespace or your MQTT namespace. But um, I'm a big believer in PubSub and event-driven or exception-driven applications. Typically a lot more uh, efficient. You know, you can cache late. If, if 500 people all want to look at the most recent temperature out of a storage vessel, there's no reason we should have to read 500 times to that sort of system. So in a, tra in a traditional kind of request response, imagine that we're loading the, you know, we're loading the system up with 500 requests every 10 seconds. That's kind of silly. So a lot of times what we'll do is we'll put some, some form of broker in the middle, right? That caches that data. Um, the other, the other um, advantage to that is uh, if you, if you look at the other way, look at, Imagine that data is in the cloud. Um, it's actually surprisingly difficult to do um, PubSub or exception-driven communications without a persistent connection. You need to keep a pipe open, right, to the yes. cloud. Yet many cloud architectures are not really well designed for keeping a pipe open, right? They're designed for a website that loads a page and, you know, I, I'm oversimplifying. But this is where there's some complexity in implementing things like MQTT and, and other protocols in the cloud, because it does require a different way to manage those many connections. Um, so architecturally, it brings some of its own, you know, its own challenges with it. Um, and, and, you know, these are all, um, I think the other benefit of building, kind of bringing a, a broker into the middle of some sort is it gives you a place to aggregate data from multiple sources, which is extremely valuable. Whether you want to call it a digital twin or whatever you want to call it, it's still a valuable ability to create kind of a more uh, 360 view of your assets and processes. Um, the second thing it does, which I don't think gets fully appreciated sometimes, 
many of these source systems have little or no security. If you can plug into them, you can communicate with it. So uh, the ability to kind of use that broker tier as your security and access control tier is also another benefit. Oh, yeah. Well, speaking of, of, of security, I mean, well, we should go without saying that uh, security really needs to be an integral part of, 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 of an IT architect, you know. Uh, what techniques uh, should, should be used, you believe should be used uh, for, for securing data that is both addressed and also in, in transit? So let's start, wanna, let's start with a lot of the don'ts, the, the, do, the good the do's and it, uh, a book, there's a book that just came out, I highly recommend it if you haven't read it yet. Um, it's called Countdown to Zero Day and it's basically an analysis of the Stuxnet attack and in very you know, granular detail about how it was executed with USB keys and, and the layered complexity of this uh, malware and how it integrated with the PLCs, how it masks itself. That, if you read that, you will immediately identify 10 of the top don'ts, right? Okay. Simple things like using default passwords or storing hard-coded hard passwords or protocols that have no encryption, protocols that have no um, access controls if you're physically connected. So, I mean, I guess many of those things are quite obvious, right? But, um, but they still happen a lot. I mean, you go to somewhere like, um, what's the... Uh, there's a search engine, I've Shodan, that's the yeah. search engine for you know, vulnerabilities. It's kind of frightening how many of those systems are just you know, readily, readily exposed. Um, other simple things that don't make, that aren't necessarily obvious, it, it's, no, it's not really necessary. Let's imagine that I have a system in an industrial facility that I want to expose to the outside world. The least um, secure thing you could do is put it, give it a public IP address, right? I mean, that's just insane to make it uh, public. So firewall technology or out exclusively using outbound connections from those systems to the cloud, it's not foolproof, but because they can be spoofed and, and things like that. Um, certificate management, you'd be amazed how many companies have turned off uh, certificate verification, right? because they don't want to update their devices at the edge with, yeah. with certificate finger. That's just bad hygiene, right? I understand it's difficult and it's hard, but you are opening yourself up to be, uh, you know, to, to uh, a man in the middle. It's all kinds of attacks that, that create complexity. And then security is like, again, we have so many systems that inherently are insecure. Physical security matters, air gaps, communications, physically how you wire these things up. Right. If, it, if it's easy for someone to plug an uh, Ethernet cable from the IT network to the uh, plant control network, man, that's a yeah, you know, that's a problem. That's a so physical security and air gaps. And then lastly, the part that I don't think gets talked about enough is the application level security. Right. Different people have different roles and functions. A technician may need to get at you know very low level access to some of these systems and configure them or based on my business function, I may need to you know, access uh, certain things and, and others. Our systems historically have not been good about um, very granular access controls. You kind of have access to everything or nothing. So again, I think this is where kind of an intermediate um, broker or you know, middleware or something brings a lot of value is it, 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 can, it can 
as long as you've implemented it such that the only way to get to those source systems is through that broker, then it be, can become effectively a, you know, a, a special kind of firewall in a way, which more application level security in there as well. I'm, I'm a big believer in that approach. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting, very interesting insights. Now, uh, as you are well away, there's like thousands of, of, of uh, cloud platforms, um, including the cloud like your Azure and AWS. Now, um, given that situation, how would one uh, go about like selecting the platform that's most appropriate to, 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 to what they need to, to achieve as far as IoT is concerned? I wish there was an easy answer for that one also, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's borders on a religious or political discussion sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. a, a lot of times, so you've got the cloud vendors themselves. I mean, I, I won't oversimplify, but there's not too many big cloud vendors out there, right? There's yeah. not any longer. Um, secondly, you, it, you, might, you might choose to use the IoT platform provided by those vendors, or you might choose to utilize a third-party platform that, that may be hosted on one of those uh, general-purpose cloud vendors. So oftentimes, you don't even know what the underlying cloud infrastructure is. Um, you have to consider geographical coverage, right? Um, how, do, do they have data centers near me that can deal with, you know, the latency considerations, availability considerations, uh, data residency, you know, all those kinds of things that are very, very important. Um, do, are they, do they understand the industrial use case? Are they priced to deal with the massive amounts of data ingestion that an industrial process and industrial equipment might generate? Uh, pricing is, you know, it's, it's something a lot of people, it, it, quite frankly, it can be very difficult to calculate in advance what your cloud costs will be. Um, do, I would also consider, do they have some unique intellectual property around analytics or some other capability? Uh, increasingly, it's becoming a multi-cloud world. I mean, that's just the nature of, uh, you might be running Salesforce for, you know, for your CRM systems, some hosted SAP somewhere for your back office systems. Uh, some analytic cloud or, you know, manufacturing intelligence application running somewhere else. Um, so, you know, again, good, good security hygiene on how you connect those two together um, or three or four as the case may be. Um, and I think it's, we have to be thoughtful about what workloads to move to the cloud in the first place, right? Because sometimes the pendulum swings too far one direction or the other. So being thoughtful about uh, cost being one of those, right? Data ingress tends to be one of the most expensive parts. So do we really need to move all that data up? Um, in many cases, the answer is yes. Uh, historically, I would say, and this is just opinion, take it at face value, um, Microsoft has had a much stronger presence in the industrial space. It's just, that's the way it's been. Yeah. Uh, both from an outgrowth of success of Windows and industrial, um, but uh, you know, other other cloud vendors certainly have viable solutions as well, and certainly a number of third parties do uh, as well. Uh, so, short version is pick your pick your applications that you really need to use and the capabilities you need to use, um, and then let the you know then choose the cloud vendor accordingly. A lot of times, to be honest, uh, companies have already established a deep relationship with one cloud vendor at the IT level. And you might be kind of forced into, you know, for sometimes good reasons, but you may, that choice may have already been made for the OT people as to which cloud vendor they're going to utilize. 
Oh yeah. Well, maybe as a follow up to that question, uh, there are cases where where like maybe companies might want to to migrate their solution in, in between some platforms. Yeah. Um, so obviously that would require that they actually have a solution that is uh, not locked into that platform. So what um, architectural approaches should, 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 should one take to sort of avoid being locked into the single platform? That's a great question. That's a topic I'm very personally very passionate about in that having built a couple of platforms over the years, I was always trying to protect my customers from that, right? And it's not just protecting them from cloud dependence, it's what data storage they might be using. You know, uh, some new evolution and new capability comes out. How can I allow customers to leverage that? Um, so it comes down to me to abstraction and extensibility. Abstracting away the fundamental parts of your application. I need to store and retrieve time series data. I need to cache real, real time values and share them over a pub sub infrastructure. I need to you know, route the workflows to my backend. Think of it abstractly and then find out in each of those cloud vendors, of course, there's going to be some rework required inevitably as you, if you move between those. But as a third party, this is where the perhaps the benefit of, of third party or intermediary IoT platforms can be very helpful because they've taken that into consideration. Not all of them. Some are very tightly bound to one you know, cloud vendor or another. Um, but considering, you know, again, that abstraction and extensibility, I believe, is kind of the core of, of all of it. Um, and, uh, you know, you brought up uh, examples like uh, Geo, I think in one of your questions uh, and, and when we were talking earlier, um, lifting applications across geographies, right? Well, I might not have that cloud vendor or might not be the ideal one for this particular region of the world. You've got a lot of companies, for example, which will, you know, take one cloud vendor approach in China, another in you know, different parts of the world. You have to be prepared for that. Um, it's not just what's technically best, it's regulatory considerations, it's practical considerations. Um, and increasingly, I don't see a lot of companies doing a or vendors doing a really good job to help customers that have a distributed cloud solution, even if it was all on Microsoft or Amazon, but it's multi-region. Um, there's still a big problem in how do you deploy applications across those? How do you get a holistic view of all the data that's across that, that wide geography. So there's still a lot of work that the cloud vendors can do as well to make, not just, you know, I think that, I think they're all being fairly good about portability. You know, most of them give you a way to export your data, no matter how massive it might be. Um, it, it does get to the point when you look at the size and scope of industrial data, you get to a point where there's just so much gravity around that data, it becomes very difficult and expensive to move. So, Lock-in sort of happens sometimes on its own, but uh, yeah, abstraction and looking at potentially third-party solutions that sit on top of the generic cloud infrastructure or even the other IoT clouds. Um, and you know, that's another, that's just another pattern that's happening a lot as well as companies have focused more on the application layer, right? And whether it came in through, you know, Azure IoT, ThingWorks, AWS IoT, an MQTT broker and Google Cloud, who cares? We're an application level platform that lets people, you know, utilize that data in different ways, visualization, AI, enterprise integration, things like that. Oh, interesting. Now, 
based on the on the argument that you just uh, put forward, I, I would like to believe that we're going to see a lot of solutions uh, being built uh, like like in a distributed fashion. So it means there's going to be a whole lot of cloud to cloud communication. Uh, do you have like any best practices as far as cloud to cloud integration uh, is concerned? What should like companies look out for? That's great. That's a good question. I mean, one of the big um, so let me give you a kind of a classic example of, of cloud to cloud in the broader IoT is where a uh, vendor of some communication infrastructure, a low, a low power wireless network, a satellite uh, uh, connection, even a cellular uh, uh, network of IoT devices sometimes. The, raw, the device management, the device provisioning, and the raw movement of data and messages may be all encapsulated in that vendor's cloud, wherever that might be. Could be in their own data centers, it could be on a, you know, one of the big cloud vendors. But I almost like to think of those as just one big device, right? It's one big device that has a lot of data. And how can I efficiently um, link those two together? That's where a PubSub model is absolutely essential. To try and move that much data in a request response way, um, it, it, or let's just say it doesn't necessarily need to be PubSub per se, but an exception-based movement, a fire hose of you know, information and interesting events. Like let, this, this is actually a, where the vendors themselves have some responsibility to expose um, it, data in an easy way to consume, you know, interesting events. Like, you should be able to know when a new device got added or removed. You should know when, you know, new data or events has arrived, uh, a conduit. But once again, I think it starts to become increasingly obvious to a lot of people that uh, that IoT um, cloud, that, that third-party IoT cloud and the device data is just one part of the solution, right? Uh, all the information about an asset goes way beyond the data coming in from the device and its sensors, its service history, you know, all, all kinds of other, how it was manufactured. All this other information needs to be kind of brought together to really get the maximum value. So that's why I kind of like to think of integrating with another IoT cloud, it's just one giant, that's over, so one giant PLC, right? <laughs> or you know, one giant device that I need to integrate with. Oh, interesting. Uh, well, we have already touched a bit on the on the issue of uh, like the fact that there's there is some services that may not be available in certain uh, geographical uh, areas. So I've like always wondered how that really affects uh, your architecture. You as an architect, how does it affect you in putting together a solution? So yeah, like, yeah. The three I think the three big things that it that it affects directly are how you deploy applications. Like if I want a consistent application across the globe, um, yet I am running it in different data centers. Let's be clear too. Um, it's not just a problem with the applications we build collectively. The cloud vendors themselves don't have necessarily consistent deployment of their own services across the globe, right? If you look at some new, you know. We, you know XYZ cloud vendor comes out with some cool new thing that does vibration analysis on equipment and that's service in the cloud. Um, it doesn't mean it's going to be available in every region. It doesn't mean it's going to be available in every region in some specific time frame. So even the infrastructural pieces that we use will dictate um, you know, where we run that 
obviously regulatory when we start dealing with uh, anything in the health or, or medical domain, even, you know, to, again, regionally, it can go uh, much, much broader than that, where you have restrictions on where the data can move. Um, what it does create a big complication with is how you create that holistic view, right? If I want a global view, if I want to do global analytics, um, that becomes increasingly difficult when the data is fragmented. So if we take a page from the, you know, learn a lesson from the healthcare industry, the concept of personally identifiable information, right? Where you, you may, you know, maybe it's permitted to bring some somewhat anonymized information about those assets and processes together in a, uh, data lake in one geography. Again, I, it's very specific to you know, regulatory issues and things like that. Oh, interesting. Now, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I, what I foresee is a situation whereby manufacturing companies are not going to go like all in with the external platforms. I, I believe we're sort of going to see like a mixture of private sort of kind of cloud and public cloud uh, could you please uh, compare for us uh, between public cloud and private cloud uh, as far as benefits to 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 to, to a manufacturing company is concerned? Sure. Um, so you know, there's a fine line between what a private cloud is and private cloud-like stuff, right? So go back to the earlier example where a customer may have a data center and they're running, you know, virtualization infrastructure or some common data services on their hardware. They may be doing that, you know, with uh, more of a virtual virtualization vendor or a database vendor, or they may be uh, increasingly some of the cloud vendors now let you bring cloud-like functionality to the edge. With, they have hardware partners that'll, you know, build your rack that you manage very much like as if you were running Azure or AWS or something like that. So that line gets kind of blurry what the difference is between them, but it still comes down to like, there are uh, a great example, I think would be like governmental cloud, right? We've got for in the, in the national security industry or defense industry, um, each of the big cloud vendors has already built kind of segmented clouds for them. Um, some, a lot of businesses still manage certain parts of their infrastructure because they just, believe that that uh, data can't risk flowing outside the boundaries for a variety of reasons, whether they're real or imagined. Um, so, uh, and, and then all the illities we talked about earlier, right? I need availability. I, I, there's a lot of debate and discussion about whether uh, private infrastructure and private clouds are more reliable or more secure than a public cloud. Um, because the question, you know, here you have a group of uh, the, the cloud vendors live this day in, day out. They're always trying to improve their uptime, their service, their security. It, do, you, do you have that same capability, you know, with a private cloud? I don't know. That's, that's not really my core area of expertise, that kind of infrastructural stuff. But um, I think really it comes down more to where does the application need to run? What's the best place for it to run? And you know, do we, can we get some of those good cloud-like capabilities, even if we're running it in the edge, in the data center? Like, I personally would love to see edge infrastructure start to bring more cloud-like capabilities too. That particularly, you know, hey, uh, uh, we're starting to do more things with these applications, performance is suffering. Instead of getting a bigger box, put more boxes and, and enable, like, people in the manufacturing world, or excuse me, the, the 
the plant side of the world. Manufacturing is a big thing, right? You have design, yeah, right? yeah. You have designing products, selling product service. But within that, that plant environment, we grew up out of the kind of the client server world or, the, or even worse, the monolithic app running on one box. If we can get tools from the cloud vendors and infrastructure from the cloud vendors that lets us get all the goodness of cloud scalability, high availability, all that stuff, I think that would be kind of cool, right? But we also have to make it easier for developers to develop applications that leverage those capabilities without having to be experts in you know, designing for a, a, a cloud architecture. That seems to me a super exciting opportunity for the cloud vendors themselves is to rediscover the edge. Yeah, certainly is, certainly is and makes uh, quite a lot of sense. Now, uh, Rick, I mean, yourself, you've put, put out quite a, a lot of successful uh, IoT or software companies. Uh, now, as a last question, uh, is there anything that you're currently working on or anything that you want to bring to the attention of the audience? Well, a lot of the things that I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm always yeah. trying to learn new technologies. Uh, my COVID project was to learn data science and Python and all that stuff. But a lot of the uh, companies that I'm working with these days are in the AI space, applied machine learning, uh, whether it's edge-based stuff um, to, uh, to take vibration and audio and you know, imagery and turn them into meaningful industrial applications. Um, there's just so much potential for that. I call it meta-sensing. It's an area that I've always felt would be super powerful. Um, and then similarly, uh, some companies I'm working with that are applying uh, AI and machine learning on the cloud side. What's interesting though, is a lot of the companies in that space are very, very focused on the assets, the machines, and, you know, their uptime. Um, an interesting uh, amount of uh, lost opportunity or missed opportunity is applying those same techniques to the processes uh, themselves. So that's an area that I'm, I'm, I'm spending some time on these days and really intrigued by. Oh, that's some really interesting, interesting stuff. Now, Rick, uh, that brings us to the end uh, of this discussion. I really enjoyed uh, uh, speaking to you about uh, everything IIT. Uh, now, I wish you all the best in your future endeavors, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you.